Hello, everybody. Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Here, we help you win at the game of business and marketing so you thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. My name is Adam Homie. I am your host, and I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. Please check out our previous and our upcoming episodes at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com and be sure to subscribe on your favorite syndication network, such as iTunes. Every five-star rating we get helps us serve more business creators just like you. And, and please be sure to share your thoughts about your favorite episodes. Now, today, we're going to have a little bit of fun, actually. Every so often, we get these episodes that have really catchy titles and really catchy themes, and they just are going to cover a wide breadth of what we're going to deal with in terms of being business creators and some of the things that face our businesses. And to share this with us today, we have Todd Palmer of Extraordinary Advisors. Let me just tell you a little bit about Todd. He's a renowned thought leader and CEO, executive coach and author, who is committed to improving lives. As a successful entrepreneur and business owner, he works with both individuals and companies to support corporate growth, foster business startups, and guide leaders in the areas of talent management, workforce planning, and organizational development. As the CEO of a six-time Inc. 5000 company, Todd knows the struggles that businesses face around the areas of people, cash, strategy, and execution. Through his firm, Extraordinary Advisors, Todd is able to guide leaders into programs of sustained profitability. He and I have been chatting a little bit here in the green room, and i got to tell you, you are going to love this guy. So, Todd Palmer, come on in. The weather's fine. Good afternoon. How are you? Couldn't be better if you paid me a million dollars. However, I would like you to try it just to test the theory. Well, you know, it's, it's nothing wrong with having big, hairy, audacious goals. I think you're, I think you're on to something. All right. Okay, so here's what I want to do. I imagine by now – a few of our listeners have opened a separate browser tab, and they're looking up this Todd Palmer of Extraordinary Advisors, wanting to get to know more about him. So what I'd like to do is just sort of take a quick step back. I read off your official bio that tells us a lot about what you're doing right now and some of your brilliance and your passion as you are currently expressing them to the world. But what I'd like to do is take a step back and tell us a little bit about your journey and what's brought you to this point. Oh, for sure. It's, it, it's been an interesting entrepreneurial journey. I started my, my first company at the age of 27. Well, actually, if you step back, I actually started my first company when I was in fifth grade. And I right. was uh, selling can- – I grew up in a small farm town. Uh, I had 42 kids in my graduating class, not, not a very big, big town at all. And we had one grocery store, and my mom would drive me to school every day. And I would stop at the local store, pick up – you know, two or three dollars with a candy, and I'd take it to school and I'd sell it for you know fifteen dollars to all the other students. So I kind of had this little racket going, and uh, that was actually my first company. I got called into the the principal's office and was told that I shouldn't take advantage of my my fellow students like that, and really bothered uh-huh. my capitalistic mindset. Um, so yeah, that was my first company. But this, uh, you know, my real entrepreneurial journey has started when I was twenty seven years old. I started the company Diversified Staffing Services. For $15,000, I went to those traditional funding sources, friends, family, and fools. Someone was nice enough to invest in me, not my idea. And then I was able to, to grow that business by providing, you know, labor talent to the Detroit, Michigan market, 
for several years, and then we had some good days, we had some really bad days, and now here I am on your show today. All right. Well, you know, it's funny. You and I both come from fairly rural areas, and I mean, I live way out in the country, which for what I was thinking when I was about your age was kind of a disadvantage. See, I wanted to go out and I wanted to have me a little grass cutting business, but the only yards I could get were my own parents' yard, the the neighbors, my grandparents who were the other neighbors, and a couple people in the community up the road where I pushed my lawnmower up the road. I wanted that. I had a vision of having a whole lineup of houses and being busy every day, but I was so far out there, I couldn't accomplish it. And then, you know, the biggest irony was is uh, one of the yards that I had, it seemed like I could just think in my head, you know what, on Thursday I'm going to go over and cut that yard. And no matter what day I picked in my head without announcing it to a single person, the day before, the owner of that yard would go run over with the riding lawnmower, which would leave all these uneven grooves and make it harder for me to see what I was doing. So just a little bit of a personal story there. And when I turned 16, I needed to have my license and a car like now. And it wasn't sure, because sure. I wanted to go gallivanting around the world because I was excited about getting out there and getting a job, get some money going. Uh, one of my challenges was, and I'm just being candid about this, I absolutely hated the clothes that my parents would buy for me. It's like this is stuff I wouldn't – this is stuff where if I got caught dead in it, I would probably bring myself back to life just so I could take it off and then die again. That's how <laughs> much I didn't like it. Now, I was looking at this from a balanced point of view. I understood that they didn't want to spend money on fashionable clothing because they wanted to contribute as much as possible to my college fund. And I, at that age, I understood that, and I respected that. And obviously, I wanted them to keep doing it. So I had the idea that, you know what, I'll just get a part-time job and buy the clothes I want to wear. And well, you don't have to worry about it at all. And you'd think that would have been a welcome message, but mostly what I got was criticism. I was wasting my money. What I really needed to do was quit my job. It seemed like, it seemed like every piece of life advice I was given at the time, basically the, the underlying theme or the overall gist of it was I needed to quit my job and, uh, and not have my own income. And that just didn't work for me. I, I, I mean, and maybe I was misperceiving some of the messaging, but that's just what I kept hearing over and over and over and over again. And then as I was in college, I went to Penn State. I was majoring in political science. And you know how political science is a liberal arts major, which mostly means you write papers. And papers, as you know, usually get written the night before, the morning of, the day that they're due. And I found that when I did it that way, I got the best grade. So when others were agonizing over their term papers, which I pretty much already had figured out, I just needed to make time the night before to type it all out, uh, I was online, this is the late 1990s, and I was looking at some of the earliest e-commerce websites out there. And my interest was in competition auto sound, you know, putting a system in your ride. And yeah, sure. that industry, this is, this is back when, when that was really, really hot and exciting and Every third car coming down the road, you heard them coming a mile away with the subwoofers coming out the back, like I had my Camaro. And I was visioning how I could get into that business and make myself some money off of it. And I allowed messaging around me, you know, the whole study hard in school, get a good job, put up your 30 years, get your gold watch and retire the check in Fort Lauderdale. I let some of that discourage me. But if I knew now what I didn't know then, and if I knew then what I didn't know, what questions to ask, I could have 
possibly become a competition auto style mogul and been much further ahead. But you know what? We learn what we discover as we go along. And this is one of the reasons that I felt attracted to your topic because I felt that I was somebody who was actually ready to get things done in business except for the fact that I wasn't sure what questions to ask. I didn't know what I didn't know. And I really didn't have a framework for it. So I know that part of what you're going to provide for us is the framework. And this is something that's going to be very relevant to our business creators, so it's time to turn you loose. And let's start with how can somebody grow a business but not go out of business? I know that's a very broad question, and you're going to bring it in for us. Sure. It's one of those situations where I think a lot of people, especially startup entrepreneurs, and it's amazing how many startup entrepreneurs are you know, between the ages of 18 and 25, but I'm also blown away by how many entrepreneurs are between the ages of 45 and 60 starting their first business. And they get very, very focused on I've got to get revenue, which is true. I've got to get customers. I've got to get my product or service to marketplace. And they, and they start growing and they start landing accounts, and they start discounting prices. They start eroding their margins, and they're not even aware of it sometimes because they're, they're so excited about the, the trajectory, and they're, they're running their business like it's a checkbook business, meaning I've got money in the, the bank. I can write a check off that. I must be profitable. And they really lose sight of the, mar the margin. So I always talk to my clients about margin over revenue, that you can have a great revenue run, but no margin, you're really not doing a very a very competent job as a business owner. I see this a lot with construction clients that I've worked with. A lot of them will, will take on jobs, especially here in Michigan in the winter, to keep their guys working. I'll take on anything, any kind of work I can get. I want to keep my, my employees employed. I want to keep my employees' families fed, and, and I want to keep these people happy, which is on an altruistic perspective is, is above reproach. What they unfortunately do is they start getting into bidding wars, and they take on jobs below cost, they don't even realize it because typically with construction, you're going to run into overruns and delays and all sorts of setbacks that erode that margin. So if you're taking something at a cost basis, you're, not, you're going to grow right out of business. Your revenue is going to go up, but if your margin is not applicable and, and, and in line with that revenue growth, you're going to have some real struggles. And I've seen a lot of companies, even in the staffing space where my experience was, you know, will we'll take on a lot of opportunities at very razor-thin margins, in one diversion, one hiccup, one worker's comp injury, one legal issue, one setback, and they may have a, a, a run rate of a $5 million run rate, but their margins are so thin that they're going out of business, and that's the prime time where a competitor will come in and essentially buy that book of business at cost, and the, that entrepreneur then all of a sudden flips into being an employee, which was not what they set out to do. Right. And, you know, that's funny. I was in the staffing business as well. My first real job was working as a recruiter for a temp agency. And everything you said, I stipulate to. It's the same thing. And what you find with a lot of different business models is kind of what you described, is one thing pulling out or one thing changing can crash the entire thing. You know, it's funny. I was inside a, a discussion group uh, a couple years ago. And the conversation came up of how much money would you need to basically quit your business? Now, I sure. pointed out that I have one client who's been with my company for a long time. They've been a client of ours since forever. And they're 
the type of client that can stay as long as they want for the things that they're here for, no matter what I do. That's how much I love working with them. And they have repeatedly asked me how much they would need to pay me to have just them as a client, get rid of all my other clients. And I said, all right, so for five years, or excuse me, for one year of exclusive, I would need you to pay me $5 million. You don't have to give it to me all at once. You have to show me that it's in a separate escrow account all at once to give me half of it up front, non-refundable. That would be my price because, as I figure it, I'm going to lose a year of momentum, and I'm going to end a lot of relationships that are very lucrative to me to go exclusive with them. Now, of course, inside that same discussion group, you had this one person that said, when you do this so special that you should be paid $5 million for it, huh? I want you to tell me. And I ignored him, just like everybody else did. Because the conversation <laughs> that everybody else got the point about was, really, what is the value of what you do and what trajectory are you on? And what are the vulnerabilities? For me to set aside all of my marketing and business momentum and lose all of it one of my accounts, the way I viewed it is I need $5 million for that because I need to know that one way or the other, I'm going to come out on the other side because what if that one client, after that year's up, they say, wow, you've done so much for me for that $5 million I paid you. Um, I'm retiring myself. I don't need you anymore. I'm stuck until I start from square one. So I had to think about that. And I had to think about how many steps back I was taking on my organic trajectory that I needed to make up for. And I came up with the number $5 million. Now, what right. that client said is, all right, well, let's get busy to the point where I can afford the $5 million. And I'm game for that because that's sure. forward motion. And the $5 million, that's setting an ascension. That's setting a goal. That's setting something to work for. Would I actually exactly. do that? I don't know. Maybe the other primary clients I have right now, maybe they all, all go out of business between now and then. Or maybe they all retire or maybe something else happens between now and then. Who knows? But the fact is there's a goal out there. But to your point, these are some things you got to be mindful. And this is why some folks, myself included, advocate having multiple streams of income. Well, I think there's real value in, in, in you know, we call it client diversification sometimes. You want to have those multiple right. streams of income. And when you go to, you know, it's interesting from a consultant's perspective or, you know, from any professional service provider and I run into this too when clients say to me, why should I, you know, why should I engage you versus another coach or another, uh, another mentor, so to speak? And it really comes down right. to this. It's, it's, you, you, for, the, for the hour you're going to spend with me, you're getting 30 years worth of experience in that hour. Um, you know, I, I still use a coach for me personally. I, I'm, so, I'm a believer in – I drink my own Kool-Aid. I can't, I'm not just prescriptive. I'm also taking the Kool-Aid as well. And then right. if you take a look at – the, 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 a lot of coaches, and it just stuns me, I'm sure you've run into this, where a lot of people want to go into the coaching space or they want to go into the business coaching space specifically, and they've been an employee somewhere else. It's great to be an employee. Nothing wrong with being an employee, and you do bring value to the conversation. But it's a different conversation when you've had your own skin in the game. It's, your di it's a right. different conversation when you've been that entrepreneur who's had to make payroll, that entrepreneur who's had to figure out how to rob Peter to pay Paul to make things happen. And uh -huh. you know, my clients really do enjoy the, you know, a lot of times they'll say, hey, I saw you speak. I, I love your story about making the Inc. 5,000 six times. I'd love to engage you. And I always have to step back and start over and explain to them, you know, that's, the, that's kind of the, the conclusion of the, of the movie, so to speak. What you missed was the first, 
90 minutes of the two-hour movie where you know, I'm struggling and I'm fighting and I'm making bad decisions and I'm making unfortunate choices. Those are all part of the journey. And you know, as your coach, I'm willing to take that journey with you. I'm not just going to leave you on your own and I'm not going to leave you to, to, to fend for yourself and I'm not going to be prescriptive without the experience behind it. What I mean by that is I've right. seen a lot of coaches come in and say, you know, uh, I have another client that's done that or I read a, a book that you did that or I, I saw a case study where you did this or the Harvard Business Review said this. And those are all great resources. I think, though, it carries a lot more, more value. In a, the, the speaker has a lot more teeth with his audience, whether it's a large audience or it's his client, to say, I've been where you are. Let me speak from experience. Uh-huh. And, you know, I think sometimes uh, as consultants and coaches and guides and mentors, we sometimes get an opposite form of pressure. And this is something that I've experienced and something that some of my colleagues have experienced as well. Let me give you an example from a friend of mine. Uh, this friend of mine does webmaster work. And they had a client come to them and say, uh, you know, I was on a webinar earlier, and I need to have a Google AdWords campaign up by tomorrow afternoon. So I need you to become an expert on Google AdWords, I need you to have your, all my campaigns running for me and converting by tomorrow afternoon at 4 o'clock. My friend is somebody who absolutely despises the very thought of doing Google advertising, Facebook advertising, or any type of social advertising, and is so repelled by it that they actually work with their clients on how to grow their businesses, grow their search engine presence, and grow their audience without spending money on advertising. And somebody comes to them and says they need them to become an expert by reading a book within 24 hours. My point being is sometimes the pressure goes the opposite way. This client of theirs was on some webinar and they got so excited that, oh, well, if I, I can make instant riches by advertising on Google AdWords, which it doesn't work that way. And, no, it doesn't. <laughs> and then they put the pressure on their their coach, your consultant. Uh, so basically what I'm seeing here is kind of a push and pull thing, and I know this is a little bit outside of what we originally envisioned for this, but something I see more than I should and more than is commonly discussed is the pressure that we get to develop expertise and stuff that we don't know on artificial or forced timelines. Well, I think when people hear the phrase, you know, entrepreneur, or they hear the, the phrase coach or they, they see, you know, an award you've won or an accolade you've received or success you've had, they, they often think that it was done, um, you know, with magic, with a silver bullet, right. with a one-shot deal, and they think you are an expert at everything. And I always say to my clients that, you know, for every individual success you're going to have as an entrepreneur, don't forget that it took a team to get you there, a team all the way from, your, you know, your family of origin to the, the team at your organization to your trusted advisors that have helped you. So nobody succeeds alone. There are no silver bullets. There, this isn't, there, right. are over, there are no overnight successes. And the crazy thing about like, what, what you see in the media is you see the extremes. You see the guy who it looks like you know, was an overnight success and has a golden, a, a golden idea and, and a rocket ship trajectory from you know, point zero to point 100, a straight line of success. Or you see the people at the other end of the spectrum who are, who are you know, overcoming great adversity and struggling. The reality is 99% of us live somewhere in the middle. And we have daily struggles. We have daily struggles with our business. We have daily struggles with our family. We have daily struggles with our personal life. We have daily struggles with how we talk to ourselves inside of our heads. Sometimes entrepreneurs you know, don't want to get out of bed and do the work and the company that they own. 
Sometimes they don't uh-huh. want to deal with their employees. They don't want to deal with the, the conflict. They, don't, they struggle leaning into that uncomfortable. They, go, you know, they watch TV shows like Shark Tank, and they think, you know, I just wish Mr. Wonderful and Mark Cuban would, would invest in me, and that would solve all my problems. Uh-huh. They don't yeah. realize that that's not how it works. Right. You know, I watch I watch Shark Tank sometimes myself, and, you know, what mystifies me is the approach that some folks take. It makes me wonder, are these paid actors being trained to act so ridiculous? <laughs> I mean, it's uh, in terms of appealing to a prospective investor. And, yeah, to your point, uh, sometimes we see folks, they're waiting for the magic bullet, the one push-button strategy that's going to bring in the instant riches. And I can tell you, I've had clients who've been with my firm for 10 years and longer. And the, the reason they've been here so long and the reason they experience the success they experience is because they do things consistently and they play the long game. And I've been with them long enough to also see something else cycle through once or twice with each one of them is when they start to get a little complacent because things are going so well. And sometimes it's easier said than done to get the engine going. I've been through that with my business. Because I've been busy oh, for, for a sure. long time. Yeah, I mean, well, uh, yeah, and and one of the most common things we see from our perspective and our audience is your email list goes dead on you. It can happen to everybody, and it happens the most. Yeah, it, and it really does. And I think it's it's really valuable that there are programs like yours that really pull back that curtain on entrepreneurship to to let people know that you know the struggles that they're having are are not necessarily unique. You know, I, I use right. a phrase a lot that I've heard from friends of mine that, you know, an entrepreneur alone is an entrepreneur at risk. And yeah. it, it, it's, it's sometimes it's, uh, entrepreneurs are often seen as the, the, the self-starters, the, the rugged individualists, which is often very true. But with that comes that imposter syndrome often where we don't want to tell people we don't know things. We don't want to reach out for help right. because it's embarrassing or we think people think we should have all these answers. And the reality is that's one of the things I really love most about my coaching practice is, is helping people feel not alone, helping people lean into those uncomfortable moments so they come out on the other side where they want to be. They're getting the success they want. But I'm telling you, like you know, it doesn't happen overnight, and it doesn't happen without skin knees, some, up, <laughs> some uncomfortable conversations, some, some, some painful decisions that – you know, not only can impact the, the, the entrepreneur, the entrepreneur's family, but the people they work with in their companies and the customers they service, sometimes those, those difficult and uncomfortable conversations, though, once you get through them, it's like the, 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 the darkness is always worse right before the light, and they can get to these next levels that they didn't even think they did because they're swapping a lot of those expectations for positive intentions. Yeah, and one of the challenges I think sometimes we see is, we're on social media, and we're looking at everybody else's highlight reel. And oh, for sure. when we look at ourselves, we're looking at what we left back on the cutting room floor. But that's the whole point. Everybody you see on social media that allegedly is experiencing their best year ever, new year, new me, and all that other stuff, you don't see what's on their cutting room floor. They're not showing you what's on their cutting room floor. They're only – it's like you've heard it say many times, people – Teach the photographs of themselves winning races, not losing races. Ha, I love that. I've never heard that. That is exactly true. And, and I, I have to yeah. admit to you and your audience, I'm guilty of the same thing. You know, I, 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 uh, one of my favorite passions 
is is still playing competitive baseball, and I just turned 50 years old. And I have no problem telling my friends about, you know, going three for four with five RBIs. I don't want to talk about the the four game the, the game I struck out four times. Right. Yeah, that's that's, that's very that's very true. We we celebrate that which we win, and sometimes, and I found this that entrepreneurs and business creators don't feel that there's a place where they can be comfortable speaking about the challenges that they have. And here's a story that I've shared. I'll, I'll keep this very brief because I have a few questions for you that are going to be pretty awesome here in just a second. Is I have seen people who join mastermind programs because they know who's in that program and they want to get them all as their clients. I have been in masterminds where the owner of the mastermind took a liking to me and tried to refer their entire mastermind to me to become my client and have found it to be sometimes good because I've met some of my best clients there, but it also comes with a certain level of misery. And for one of the masterminds I belong to, I actually had to go to the owner of the mastermind and ask them to please not try and refer every single member of their mastermind to me to be my client. And the reason was quite simply, I needed a place where I could say, my annoying effing clients are driving me up a DD wall and I don't know what the F to do. You can't exactly say that when all of your clients and prospects are in the room. You need a place where you can speak openly about the fact that we all go through and be able to get the support that we need so we can move past that moment of feeling down and feeling negative and transform I think that into something that's brilliant and passionate. I think you're wise to recognize that. In, in every room is not your ideal room for a customer as well. Right. Um, I'm, I'm part of a group called EO, the Entrepreneurs Organization. So I have the exact same opportunity to go in, let that let down my guard, and talk with other successful entrepreneurs about the challenges and struggles we have. Um, I, I think it's incredibly wise of you to recognize that you know you need that safe space and you need that place to vent. And you know the challenge, and oftentimes entrepreneurs especially in the early stages or, or in the inexperienced stages, will go home and have those conversations with their spouses. They'll go and, and talk about it with their social groups, whether it's golf or bowling or whatever they do. And if someone's not an entrepreneur or someone's a stakeholder like a spouse, sometimes the, our, our brutal honesty scares the living daylights out of them. It threatens their sense of security. It threatens their sense of safety. Or you're talking to your buddy over a couple of beers who's an employee, and they're looking at me like, yeah, I, I just can't relate to not making payroll or what, you know, I don't understand your tax problem or, you know, I, I really don't understand why, why, just fire the client and go get another one. Oh, is the only client you have. Right. Yeah, I don't understand that. But let's order another round. I mean, they don't grasp that. So I think you're very wise to be part of those mastermind groups where you can really let your hair down, be vulnerable, be open, and, and get that type of, uh, of camaraderie assistance that it sounds like you're, you're really seeing the value of. Yeah. So let's uh, shift this a little bit, and I want to ask your thoughts on something. You said a little bit earlier that we're not likely or as likely to succeed when we try to go it alone. At the same time, if I had a dollar for every business creator who's been burned through a joint venture relationship, I would have, like, lots and lots and lots of dollars. I'd have a big, tall stack of dollars. You'd have your $5 million, probably. Yeah, so it gets to the point where you just want to go it alone, even when you recognize that that can slow your growth, because 
you've seen your growth blown by having to clean up somebody else's mess or dealing with a bunch of crap that you didn't feel you needed to in the first place. So for the business creator that finds themselves in that situation, what do you think that they need to know and how should they proceed moving forward, leveraging the power of the community to move themselves and others forward? So a couple of things come to mind as you talk about that. There's a big difference between an, someone who's an employee versus someone who's a partner. In a right. lot of entrepreneurs, because of how we're wired, we think everybody wants to be a business owner. We think everybody wants to have equity. I see this a lot with the you know people I, I know in the, in the entrepreneurial community as well as some of my clients who really they love the employee. They want to they want to golden handcuff him or her into the organization for eternity. So they're going to offer them equity. The reality is, if you if it, if if someone approaches it with a sense of curiosity, without being, uh, without carrying that assumption of of they, this person they knowing what the other person wants, you'd be surprised that nine out of ten times they don't want to be an owner. They don't understand right. the liability. They don't understand the risk. Once it's explained to them, it freaks them out. They don't want that kind uh -huh. of kind of pressure and stress. So that's the first part. The second part I, I would when I go when I talk about people not not having to go it alone, especially in today's global economy, we can choose and pick the brains of super smart people, not only locally, regionally, nationally, but internationally, to get the best results in a very short period of time through programs like GetMagic.com. You can get a virtual assistant who works by the minute. You've got some of these programs where you can just do a, a quick engagement, get your problem solved, move on. So the it, any I used to think as an entrepreneur I had to have all the answers and I flat out knew I was not that guy. No, well first of all then I realized no one has all the answers regardless of, of what you see in the popular media or what you see with friends. Yeah, you know, not everybody. You know, those those rare birds of the Steve even Steve Jobs didn't have all the answers. He was smart enough to hire other smart people. And that's what it, what I'm really getting at is connecting with other smart people to help you and carry your ship and your dreams to that next level. Because a lot of entrepreneurs think they've got to do it themselves. They don't. And a lot of entrepreneurs think their employees, their trusted network, want to become partners, want to have that equity stake position. And I, I'm more leaning towards what you're saying is that's the last resort often you want to go to unless you really have a strong relationship and you're going to bring all the strong operations and you're going to partner with someone who's going to bring all the strong sales to your organization. That's a good partnership. But if you've got two two salespeople without any ops, or you have people who who want that you know quote unquote title of owner, but not aren't willing to put their their network to, to work, they're not willing to put their net worth into work. That's a really bad partnership. Right, right, and I think that um, I think that sometimes what people fear, at least this is in my experience, is they get into joint venture partnerships or they do collaborative work together. And then they discover that the harmony that they thought would exist because they met it after a conference and managed to get through uh, two entire Captain and Cokes with no political arguments, though obviously they're made for each other and they're the person they each needed to discover from the very beginning. So let's translate that into a big joint venture relationship and throw all in with both of ourselves. And they discover that that wasn't quite meant to be. So now they get extremely gun-shy about getting involved with anybody. And I've seen people who have actually been ripped off in partnerships like that. Uh, and it's a very sad thing because, again, who do you turn to and how do you 
learn to recognize the signs of who are the right people to work with? I think it, for me, the, if if I had a client who came to me and said, hey, Todd, I'm really thinking about doing a, a partnership or a joint venture with somebody, and we're going to share liability, we're going to share equity, we're going to share decision-making power. First thing I would tell them to do is to take a look at their core values. Take a look at, and figure out what the core values of the other person is. And there's all these outline assessments you can do and all these different programs you can put someone through. But if the core values of the two people are not in alignment when conflict rears its ugly head, and it's not a matter of if it will, it's a matter of when it will. If you don't have that sustainable core values, you're going to have a very hard time making that partnership work. Think about it, you know, kind of let me flip it a script on this a little bit. You know, in the, in the United States, we have a 50% divorce rate in marriages. Well, you have an 80% failure rate in business you have a chance of having a more successful marriage and people get gun shy about those relationships. And I think a lot of times people don't take that same care and concern that they should in entering into a marital relationship as they, as they do jumping into a, a business relationship that can have the same disastrous effects, not only financially, but, but emotionally, spiritually and psychologically to the entrepreneur where they can, you know, I've seen people who've been, I thought were going to be rock star entrepreneurs, who literally had bad partnerships where that, that entrepreneurial spirit is essentially beat out of them and they never give it another shot. Yeah. Very sad story, and I've heard it so many times. And as far as people can, giving consideration in the marriage, I know people personally that uh, kind of left in a little bit. It's like, oh, well, it feels good, and we have everything in common. I know we met just last week, but let's go to Las Vegas and get married by Elvis. <laughs> well, that's one way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, and the response, the, the long-term results of those tend to be pretty predictable. I've been around long enough to see a pattern, if you know what I mean. So yeah, now it's usually we, not one of success. Right now that we've uh, laid some groundwork and some of the challenges, and we're about halfway through here. What I want to do is I want to start bringing this back uh, and building the framework around how we move forward uh, in terms of collaborative business and your work as a collaborative business advisor helping companies get this done is you have four pillars of successful business coaching. What are those and how are they relevant to us? Well, for me, the four pillars are, I think this not only applies to, to successful businesses, but for anybody who's listening who has, has a family, I think it also applies there. So the, the four pillars are your mindset around cash, your mindset around people, your mindset around strategy, and your mindset around execution. Because those are the four parts of any business. But if you take it a step further, it's also the four pieces uh, to any family. So if you take cash, cash in a business is essentially the blood that keeps the, the, the host going. And you need cash in, you need cash out, you need to make margin, or it's just not worth doing. Families are the same way. If you, you want to plan a trip to Disney, that's your strategy. Your, your execution is, well, we could fly there. We could drive there. We could, you know, take a bus there. Okay, that's your execution. Well, you need the cash to pay for it all. Well, I want to start a business. I want to start a tech company. I have this great app. I need to hire a developer to help me with it. That's going to cost me cash. I need to find the right app developer. That's going to be a people situation. The strategy is this app is going to help me get more widgets produced per hour than any other app in the world. So that's my strategy. I need to go after people who need that. And my execution is going to be how do I get that 
that that uh, widget in front of the right people at the right time, so they're going to want to say yes. Same construct, and I see that right. all, time and time again with with entrepreneurs who have one or two or three of the pieces, but they often struggle with the fourth piece wherever it is. And I spent a lot of time getting them to, to, to ratchet their expectations and move them into intentions. I, I have some, some super successful entrepreneurs who ha- think they're going to sell their way out of the problem if they just sell more, go down the revenue route. Right. I spent a lot of time focusing on the margin piece. We have, I have clients that have you know, a dysfunctional company culture because they have 20 employees, 18 of them are great, two of them are terrible, and the entire company focuses on, on those, those two dysfunctional people. And then we help create strategies to then you know, free them up to go work elsewhere and maybe do a different career that would be more appealing to them because they can't work here anymore. So that's the real excitement is just looking at those four pieces, how they apply to those businesses, laying out strategies across all four sectors to help entrepreneurs, their teams, and their, their, their boards and their investors get where they want to go. You know, it's funny you brought something up there. I wasn't even thinking about it until you said it. And we see this so often in companies is – you have 20 people in the company, 18 of them are performers of, you know, in the range from anywhere from acceptable to superstar. And then you have these two slackers. And all of the energy in the company seems to be focused around those two slackers. How do we deal with them? How do we work around them? How about we just not work around them? How about we find out where the disconnect is between their brilliance and passion and what's going on with the company and where their opportunities for contribution are, maybe they just don't even know that they're appreciated and don't know that there is room for their brilliance and passion. Maybe somewhere along the line, somebody told them that their brilliance and passion doesn't matter. Just, just sit down, shut up, put your head down, state your cubicle, answer the phone on the second ring and do what you're told. So they said, the hell with it. I'm just going to draw my paycheck. That's all they seem to care about for me anyway. So we can look at those two slackers from a lot of different perspectives from where I see it. Oh, for and sure. One of the solutions could be, as you said, is maybe we need to find a creative way to exit them. Because if there's, if there's a variance between their brilliance and passion and what is going to best serve the company, then perhaps a creative solution could be to actually assist them in making their next career move. And inside my book, I actually share strategies on how you help your current employees find another job. It's something and that, they don't super, but it's there. Yeah, that is super important because, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs, it sounds like you've really had this experience, are very hesitant to, to, to fire and terminate people. But the reality is there's a, a way to do it with, with care, kindness, and compassion where you really are freeing that employee up to go work in a career or in a job it's going to be a better a better fit for them and a better fit for your organization because there's this whole construct of addition by subtraction. Those 18 people, if you remove those two other people, you might not even have to hire other people to replace them because the other 18 people are going to rise up to fill that, that work. Those other people are going to rise up to have a better energy in the room. Those other people are going to rise up and enjoy the, coming to work more because Daryl Donner and, and Debbie Depression aren't walking around putting everybody into a coma. Right, right. You know, I had a client maybe, what was it, wow, 13 years ago, and they were referred to me by another one of my clients. So you know the situation. You want to do right by them, just like I want to do right by all my clients. But we have multiple client relationships on this one. Now, 
this client that I'm referring to is a great guy. He's a good friend of mine. Uh, you know, we're still friends to this day. When we were working together, we discovered that our work styles were just a lot different. And we alluded to that, Todd, earlier in our conversation. You know, work styles, philosophies. Yeah, he's an honest, straight shooter, great guy, fantastic, wonderful individual, as I think I am. But we just have different views on how to get things done. So I remember it was one late morning. Uh, I had a scheduled call with him, and he said, Adam, Adam, there's two things i got to tell you. I've got bad news and I've got good news. Which do you want first? And I said, you know, let's get the bad news out of the way. Okay, I can take it, you know. And he said, all right, the bad news is, is you know that, the, that, that project we discussed last week that I was going to have you do? Well, I found somebody else, and you don't have to worry about it anymore. I said, okay, then there's good news. And he said, the good news is you were hoping I'd say that. And we both had a good laugh. Huh. Because sure, there's sure. a recognition that our relationship in that form just had gone as far as it was going to, but at the same time, it was leaving it open to other ways we could collaborate, work together, serve each other. So by 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 being able to say this one particular thing we're doing together just isn't the best fit for either one of us, let's just take that, move that aside, and now it opens the door for new opportunities. Well, it's 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 really important. It sounds like you guys were able to have a, an important and honest conversation, and that is, I'm telling you, it's half the battle, sometimes to three quarters of the battle, to just get entrepreneurs to be able to lean into those uncomfortable moments, have those honest conversations. It sounds like the two of you had. So I give you a lot of credit for that because it's that it's that willingness to be uncomfortable and to say what's on your mind in a caring but direct way where I've seen a lot of unstated things destroy businesses. Yeah, very true. So, yeah, we go back to your four pillars, the way I saw them. If you look at those four pillars, those are great ways for opening all the conversations we've had on this call because people listening to this, we're about 40 minutes in or so, maybe saying, hey, these guys have been just been sharing anecdotes back and forth. But it's these anecdotals that drive what's going on in our businesses, some of the real situations that people face and being candid about those. And then when we go back to, you know, Todd, we go back to your four pillars of successful business coaching, we see how those are the conduit for revealing these issues so they can be dealt with effectively. Well, the, the four conduits to, to that point really open up that opportunity for, for transparency authenticity and vulnerability from all parties in those difficult conversations, whether it's a, an entrepreneur and a key employee, whether it's one business partner with another business partner. I've even had to have authentic, transparent conversations with, with clients. I even had a situation where I had to have an authentic, transparent, and vulnerable conversation with a bank that wanted you know, to, to basically squeeze every last ounce of blood out of me when I couldn't make the terms of my note. And so uh -huh. – it, by being authentic, by being transparent, and by being incredibly vulnerable with the bank, I was a actually able to get them to subordinate the note and then g give me additional funds to help me dig out of the hole that I'd gotten into. So, you know, I think there's – I'm just a big believer in, in putting your, your transparent self forward. Yeah, I'm a big believer in that as well. And I've discovered over time that being able to have those conversations – is one of the most powerful elements of business. I, I mean, 
you know, we're, you know, we're having this conversation at a certain period of time. Somebody could be listening to this live. They could be listening to it on the replay tomorrow. They could be listening to it when they're going through the Business Creators Radio Show archive in five years. But I think a statement I'm about to make right now is going to be relevant no matter when you're listening to it and it's going to be timely, is that, you know, I'm dealing with some issue where I need to communicate with somebody who just sees things differently than I do. And it's a matter of the difference between facts not in dispute versus how each person views their truth. And just having that framework, uh, sure. being able to look at the pillars, I think assists us. So we also well, alluded earlier to, I'm sorry, go ahead and say something. Oh, no, please go ahead. Okay, so I was going to say, I was going to transition, because we were speaking about assessment tests and hiring and how we determine the right people to work for us and work with us and be our partners and our employees and our contractors. One of the things that you delve into, Todd, is, Knowing whether a person should hire for DNA, not resume. I have an idea what you mean by that, but break it down for us. I want to hear it in your words. Sure. So in 2006, my, my business was in really bad shape. We were, by August, we were 60 days away from running out of cash. I was $600,000 in debt, and I had a very toxic workforce culture internally within my organization. So I walked yeah. in. In September 9th, and I fired everybody, and I started over. <laughs> through that assessment, through that painful process, I, I recognized and realized I was only hiring people with what I would say was a great resume. They'd worked 10 years in the staffing industry, or they you know, had five years as a recruiter at ABC company. But they really, while they had maybe had good skill sets, they really weren't people that fit the culture of the company. They didn't match my core values. So what I did when I reorged the company is I started hiring people who had great DNA, and I taught them to be great recruiters. And I, I hired people from, from restaurant retail. I hired people from the medical space. I hired people right. who were fresh out of college. I, but I, and I refused, absolutely, no matter how tempted I was, I refused to hire anybody with a recruiting background. You know, we get through that hiring phase. We got through the training I recognized that, that I wasn't the best person to train them, so I hired an outside trainer. I played in my strengths. Boom, six out of the next seven years, we're in the Inc. 5000 as one of America's fastest-growing companies in Detroit, Michigan, during parts of the recession. So for me, wow. hiring, for DNA, hiring for DNA versus resume was beyond instrumental in, in taking the business to a completely brand-new level that I never in my wildest dreams thought I could achieve. You know, you you touch you touch on something here is uh, I and I have and I have seen this go round and round and round with clients of ours and their teams and the work we've done with their teams, where the clients would want to encourage one of their team members to be the person out in front uh, when dealing with a client or, or dealing with an external stakeholder or something along those lines. In other words, uh, delegate a member of their team to be the person to be of contact with an outside person. And in seeking out the person that they designate to deal with that external stakeholder, they pick the most introverted person who uh, literally unplugs their phone and <laughs> and they identify that person is the one they're going to put out in front. Now, I'm seeing an obvious DNA issue right there. Well, I think you're not playing to that person's strengths either. I think exactly. if you get somebody – you can get somebody, and you don't need a used car salesman either to, to be the front person. Right. Think you, you know, so I've got, I've got a, my longest tenured employee. She's been with me now for 12 years. She was the second person I hired after I reorged. 
and she sat in every seat in my company. She can literally, if I got hit by a bus tomorrow, she would make sure things continue to drive forward. She right. did, did she sit in every seat perfectly? No. But what she really had is she embodied the values of the company. And I said, you know, I think you can be a great recruiter. She says, I, I don't want to talk on the phone. I don't want to do this and I don't want to do that. And I said, well, that's fine. That's fine. Um, but t- tell me why. And I kind of went down her fear ladder of why she was hesitant. And she just didn't want to fail. She didn't want to look bad. So as the leader, it was my job to understand that, to create the safe space for her to fail forward into success. And now she's, she's now my number two recruiter. She's made more money last year than she ever thought she would make. And that money – Money for her is not a, a, something she's going to go out and buy a million things with, but she's just blown away by how much she's grown in the role. So my job is to create that opportunity for that growth within her versus just pigeonholing her. Now, what I did is I said, hey, try this for 60 days. If it doesn't work for you, you can always move back into your other position. We'll save that spot for you. Oh. So I, I created oh. that, 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 that safety net so she was able to use her DNA, which – her sales style is very matter-of-fact. It's not really salesy at all. She's very presenting, hey, here's what I have. Do you need it? But she's very yeah. likable, and she's very considerate. She's very kind. She's very sweet. She, I would never want her to go out and try to you know, sell knives at the county fair, but I, I would <laughs> want her to, 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 do, to be a good financial planner, for example. She, could, she would care about that relationship. She would care about those families, just like she cares about the candidates that we have and the companies we place them at. So – that was my job as a leader to recognize her DNA. And so many times as leaders, we miss that opportunity to, to recognize a hidden strength in somebody or a hidden talent in somebody. It's our job to bring it out of them. It's our job to challenge them. But if they're gonna if they're gonna trust us and take that step out into the uncomfortable, step off that ledge, we've got to make sure we've got a rope to be able to pull them back into a job that's gonna keep them and their family safe. But also but we gotta give them that, that opportunity to, to step out. Be uncomfortable and potentially, you know, make a difference in her case, change the direction of her family. Right. Let me uh, share something. This was an experience that we worked with one of our clients on. This client came to me. They were frustrated and irritated because a member of their team would constantly play with their smartphone during team meetings. And then the person would bring their laptop and they'd play with their laptop during the team meeting. So on the surface, you're saying, oh, we have this person who's unattentive, daydreaming, lollygagging around, addicted to their electronics. So to keep this story as short as possible, here's the pathway. First of all, what we'll determine is that the person who was constantly looking at their electronic devices simply needed to know what time it was at all times. There's something about them. They always have to know what time it is and they didn't want to be seen constantly looking at their watch, so it seemed more innocuous to just pick up their smartphone and look at the timer on that. And then what happens is because smartphones are designed with beeps and alerts and blinking lights and everything else, it draws you in. So then they would find themselves 10 minutes later fumbling with it, and all they needed to know was what time it was. So there was a simple solution to that, which was – Within the space where they're having the team meeting, position that person so that they were facing the clock that was hanging on the wall. So they could just ever so often feel a, a, a little surreptitious glance to know exactly what time it was. So then the question came up, 
why are you always so concerned about what time it is? I mean, we're going to be here as long as we're going to be here, and the meeting scheduled for 90 minutes. And then it quickly came up that the person had a lot of gripes about how the meetings were being managed. They felt the time was being wasted. They were having the same conversations for 39 weeks in a row. The same people were constantly <laughs> talking and repeating what was already said just so they could be heard saying it and blah, 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 blah. Long story short, this person who had started as being the inattentive, rude person who's always playing with their phone quickly found themselves being the meeting leader, which means they set the agenda, they guided the discussion, and it turned out to be a huge benefit for the organization because they were able to shorten that team meeting by 33% time-wise and develop a much better system for tracking deliverables and responsibilities. All because awesome. somebody took the time to actually find out why that person kept looking at their phone rather than just assuming that they were rude or technology addicted. So what I hear you saying, and this is something I use, but I'm going to paraphrase, the, 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 whoever that person was who had to question this employee approached them with a sense of curiosity, not a sense of judgment. Yeah. And that right. is so important. You know, the, and I'll, I'll share this with you and your audience. One of my favorite tools that I've stumbled upon in 2018 is a free website called colorcode.com. And you can, there's four, you go in there, it's a free self-assessment test, and it gives you a report of what your personality is, essentially. There's four colors, yellow, white, red, and blue. I'm a blue. Um, that means I'm, I'm linear, I'm direct, and I'm clear, but I can also be very, have high expectations and not sometimes always be a clear communicator. Where a lot of people I work with, especially in the creative spaces, are yellows and whites. And what it does for me is, and I use this with all of my coaching clients, I, get to, I do their entire leadership team in this through colorcode.com. And, and what it does is it allows me that huge opportunity for curiosity. So I'll see where some of their bottlenecks are. I'll see how their personality traits run. And what color code will give me is it will give me some probing questions to ask to get to the root cause of the issue. So, so I think that whoever this, this person was in your example who approached this employee about their, their technology usage when it wasn't really a technology issue at all and it wasn't a caring issue or a disinterest issue, it's almost like a coping mechanism, it was, was actually yeah. brilliant to take that route because they could have taken, like you said, that route where, well, you know, I think we really should take a look at this issue and, you know, this person's distraction, they're this, they're that, and, and, and form 12 judgments, go in and approach that person with those 12 judgments and potentially have a, a real problem on their hands. Right. Instead, by simply asking a few questions, they found a, a valuable competency that brought great benefits to their business all because they asked a question, and then they asked a follow-up question. So why do you find yourself looking at your phone? Oh, well, I just always need to know what time it is, and I just think it's, I, I didn't just want you to see me constantly looking at my watch. All right, well, we'll get you facing by the clock, so you can just glance at it, and it'll be no big deal. Is that cool? Cool. So, by the way, why do you always need to know what time it is? Well, can I be candid with you? And you see, pretty simple. It's, it's amazing that by just, by just asking some really simple, curious questions, how much we can learn as leaders. And I think oftentimes we'll just go in with a set of assumptions that just, yeah, just isn't, isn't accurate. Exactly. So let's, uh, we have just a couple minutes left here. So I want to turn one of those minutes over to you, uh, Todd. It's been very exciting having you here today. This has been quite an interesting conversation. 
And you mentioned to me that you have a little something for our listeners. So if we have anybody on the edge of their seat wanting to take this a little bit further, maybe explore the four pillars of successful business coaching a little bit deeper, maybe get into hire for DNA, not resume, and some of the other areas of your brilliance and passion, where can they start and where should they go? Absolutely. Thanks, Adam. I really appreciate the, this opportunity to share with your audience because I know that when, when I was a struggling entrepreneur, I was looking for ideas. When I was a struggling entrepreneur, I was looking for a sounding board to talk to. So what I'd like to, to do is anybody who's listening to the program today or literally, like you said, any time during the course of its, its lifetime on the Internet, uh, I'm happy to give a half hour of my time for free to anybody who wants to have a conversation about any of the four pillars or about the mindset that surrounds the four pillars. All they have to do is go to my website, extraordinaryadvisors.com, go to the contact page, put in their name, email address, telephone number, say, mention that you heard me on, on the program through Adam, and I'm happy to give a half hour of my time. No, no, uh, no compensation required, no, no strings attached. I, it's my opportunity to, to really give to others as others have given to me from for the course of my lifetime. I've got so many mentors and friends and even just one-off conversations who, who've adjusted and pivoted my, my role as an entrepreneur that I'd like to be able to have that opportunity to give it back to, to the people listening up to your program. Well, thank you very much. And, uh, again, this has been fantastic. So Todd Palmer of Extraordinary Advisors, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor and an education. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed our time together. All right. And for everybody listening, this is Adam Homey, host of the Business Creators Radio Show. Please check out our previous and our upcoming episodes at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com, where we help you win at the game of business and marketing so you thrive from your brilliance, uh, excuse me, thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.